we continue our series in landmines. When I lived in Toronto, when I was in grad school, I took the subway every day to, from where we lived all the way downtown. And the thing about subways is they run on electricity. And there are not two rails, there are three. There are the two rails for the, for the wheels, and there's that third rail, that one you don't touch, because if you touch it, you die, right? And politics is sort of the third rail of polite conversation everywhere, right? It brings to mind Uncle So-and-So from Thanksgiving, who's always railing about something. Or that person you know on Facebook who makes everything a political meme, and I mean everything. And so here's the test. If you can't figure out who in your life are one of those two people, they're you. Way back when, when I was going to, starting in college, I thought I was going to spend my life in politics. I really did. My, my first major was international relations. And I get the allure of politics, the passion that it can drive, and, and honestly, the desire to do good by a lot of people. But I've got to be honest, today, my default petition, uh, position on politicians, any politician, is a little bit different. I am fairly inclined to believe that a politician, any politician, any party, could tell me that the sky is blue and my mother loves me and they've just lied to me twice. I just don't know how. And today it seems that everything is political. And the outrage has been turned up to 11 on the dial. Christians and non-Christians, theists and atheists, young and old, rich and poor, Everything seems to be political. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is how should a Christian deal with and be involved in politics? And today I want to look at four steps for getting politics right. And no, there is no significance to the word right in that sentence. Four action steps for a world that seems to have gone politically mad. No matter what side of an argument or a political spectrum you're on or where you're from. And the question of politics and Christians is not just an American phenomenon. And to be honest, I wish it was, because that would give me a little bit more hope. But we see it all around the world. Just the other day, the Australian government was re-elected. There was an election. And the, the question of Christian identity, the, the premier there who shockingly was re uh, Reelected, is a charismatic Christian. Or some of the things going on in England or in Africa. Politics and religion is everywhere. The issues change, the stakes go up and down, but I believe that we're going to see some principles today that will help us to navigate this particularly difficult minefield. But I have to warn you, if you're looking for who to vote for, or what party to belong to, or what Christians must believe about a specific policy, you're going to leave disappointed. Because I'm not going to give you any of that. Instead, what I want us to look at is the underlying root of how we think about politics and our relationship to government. 
I want us to ask some deeper questions so that we can make wise decisions when we're faced with new and daunting political realities, and we will be. Science and technology continue to, to race forward, and that's, gonna Im- that's going to lead to new questions in the future. And we have to think well on how we engage as Christians. So, would you pray with me? Father, today, as we come to this particular landmine of, of politics and the Christian worldview and being Christian in our world, I pray that you would help us to see how to be Christian in our world just a little bit more so that we would be better followers of you and that we would put you first in what we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So where do we begin? How do you start this discussion? I would like you to turn with me to Psalm 146. And as you turn there, I want you to think about this. As, as we think about politics in the political realm, I think a mistake we often make is that we don't think big enough. We say things like, this is the most important election in our lifetime until the next one. But we don't stop to think about why we say that or what that assumes. And I think Psalm 146 can help us a bit. This is what Psalm 146 says. Praise the Lord. Hebrew, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So the question that I have is, where do you really put your faith? When we look at verses 1 to 5 in Psalm 146, we see a direct contrast. Praise God three times. Don't trust the prince. The contrast is pretty stark. Do you hope in the king or do you hope in God? Do you think that the temporal ruler or system is going to help you to solve all your problems? Temporal in the sense of the stuff of earth, but you can hear it right there, right? Temporary. The psalmist tells it straight. The prince is going to die. And on that very day, their plans will die with them. Now, today we don't have princes that die that set policy and die. The princes that we know of, we worry about on Instagram and whether or not we're going to get a picture of their baby or not. The 21st century equivalent to this is maybe regime change. Doesn't matter if you're overthrowing a dictator or electing a new president. 
Why do Democrats and Republicans obsess so much about Supreme Court justices? Because their legacy will outlast the next regime, who will immediately try to undo whatever it was that the previous one did, right? Out of office and the plans change. And all of this betrays something I think is very crucial, a fundamental bedrock belief, if you will. Why is everything today political? Because we trust the prince, not God. Because when you take God out of the equation, something is going to come in to fill the void. It can't not. And we try to fill it in different ways in our lives. We do it with entertainment and luxury. We do it with money and sex and work and power. And what is the most powerful thing in our world when you remove God? It's the state, right? Maybe it's Facebook and Google and Amazon at this point. And that's a whole different story. But when we give the state that kind of power, when we remove God from the equation, guess what? Everything becomes political, including things that are not really political. They don't have any choice. They become political instead of religious or moral. And so who do we trust, really? Here in America, we claim to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. Except for it wasn't original to Lincoln. Apparently, he got it from a sermon preached by Reverend Theodore Parker on July 4th, 1858. And he got it from a far older source than that. In 1384, John Wycliffe, the guy who first translated the Bible into English, put this in the prologue to his translation of the Bible. The Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And therein lies the heart of the issue. Who do we trust? Do we trust God or the prince? Recently, I finished a, a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stetzer. Stetzer is a Southern Baptist, was head of the curriculum department at Lifeway. If you've heard of uh, the Gospel Project curriculum for kids and stuff, he was the main editor. He now is the executive director of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. And I got to tell you, I cannot recommend this book enough. It is amazing. I believe every Christian ought to read it. And I am going to reference it several times this morning. On pages 14 and 15, he addresses sort of the tribalism of our age and what goes on. Here's what he says. A 2017 Pew study revealed that not only is society becoming more polarized, but that an overwhelming majority, 86% of Americans say, that conflicts between Democrats and Republicans are either strong or very strong. The level of polarization and tribalism in America, specifically around political identification, has reached such a point that we have begun to tangibly feel these divisions. Sadly, Christians of various, varying religious traditions, ethnicities, and socioeconomic backgrounds have often followed their non-Christian friends deep into these political divisions. Christians are often at the front lines of these divisions. This is not being countercultural with the message of Jesus. Rather, this form of tribalism conforms to the pattern of this world and does not fight for the basic truths that should unite all Christians. 
These secondary issues have conflated their spiritual and natural in a way that weakens our witness and embroils us into deep conflicts that distracts from and distorts the gospel of Jesus. He goes on another uh, paragraph or so later to say, when we become primarily identified with any tribe outside of the body of Christ, especially when we are identified to the point where others are repelled by us, we've traded our kingdom-based identity for a world-based identity. It's burning a bridge, it's building a wall. The most damaging example of Christians at their worst is when someone claims a kingdom-based identity but pursues some world-based end. Trying to use Christianity to achieve political, economic, or social objectives only increases the outrage directed towards us. A few pages later, he reminds us of Jeremiah 2, verse 13, where God warns Jerusalem. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, it's a word picture, right? In the ancient world, cisterns were crucial. The implication here is that the people have decided to trust themselves and their own devices and their own power instead of God. They have left God because they have decided that their livelihood is up to them. David says, don't trust in princes or presidents or Supreme Courts or governors or Congresses or, well, you get the picture. Trust God. He's at the center. He is the spring of living water. And this election or that candidate is not the end of the world or the beginning. So the second question is, what kind of God do we serve if he's supposed to be at the center? The rest of Psalm 146 recounts who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. In verse 5, the psalmist says that he is our hope. Why? The rest of the psalm gives us three reasons why. In verse 6a, we learn he's the creator of everything that is, the heavens and the earth. And it also says that he is, that, that he is the maker of the sea and everything in it. I want you to understand something about why David would put this, or, or the psalmist would put the, the sea in there. In the ancient world, the sea depicted the forces of chaos. Everything bad and dangerous in the world was a word picture that was common in the ancient world. So what the psalmist is saying is, even that, even those bad, awful, dangerous things, God made all of it, and he's in charge. Second, in verses 6b to 9, we see that he is redeemer. He's faithful. How long? forever. He cares for the downtrodden in verses 7 and 8. He cares for those who can't care for themselves. He's on the side of the oppressed and the poor, the prisoner and the blind, and he lifts up the one who is bowed down. In verse 8, he loves the righteous. Not just righteousness, the righteous people. He watches over the foreigner and the widow and the orphan in verse 9. And he frustrates the plans of the wicked. And then, so we get creator, redeemer. And then we see he's the true and eternal king in verse 10. He's going to reign forever. 
And that's the God we serve. He's the one that we put our trust in. And whatever our political affiliation, whatever the current cultural crisis, and there will always be one, our politics better reflect that God and what he's like. Because we're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to be following him. And that is the kind of God who is a God worth following. Second point. First we trust, then we obey. Oh, we obey human authority because we follow God. I'm going to look briefly at Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2. If we take Psalm 146 on its own, we could be tempted to justify all sorts of, frankly, wrong-headed thinking. Like, we don't have to bother with paying attention to those in authority because... They don't really matter. God matters. But that's not what we see throughout Scripture. Both Peter and Paul give us pretty strong warnings. First Paul in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from, the, from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to, be puni uh, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Peter says this, Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There is a lot going on in those two passages, and and frankly, we could camp out for weeks just there, but I have a, only a few minutes. So I've got to hit the highlights. And after looking at these two passages, I had two questions that came to mind immediately. And the first is this, how's your attitude? Look, I've already confessed my default position of skepticism towards politicians. I mean, we live in Illinois. I mean, we don't care what party you're from. We know that you're corrupt. And as soon as you finish being governor, we've already got a jail cell picked out for you because we're going to put you in there. 
right? But that's not the attitude that Peter and Paul give us. Submit to the authority, top down. Don't rebel. Don't have a rebellious attitude concerning the government, those in authority over you. Don't operate from a place of outrage, but from a place of respect. And Paul says God instituted, ordained both the fact of government and as hard as it is for us to believe sometimes, it would seem at least on some level the very people in those positions. Peter concurs and expands. He says, submit to all authorities, emperor, governors, on down. And Paul is writing in the late 50s, in the reign of Nero. It's early in the reign of Nero, so probably things are not too bad. But there's a lot of scholars that would tell you that Peter is writing six, eight or so years later, and things are getting worse. Both Peter and Paul are writing during a time when they're living under the Roman Empire, not a Western liberal democracy like the United States. We may not like a policy or a politician or a president, but theirs was a truly dangerous world. And church history tells us that both Peter and Paul would die in Rome. They proclaimed faith in a man who had been executed by the Roman Empire for insurrection. Both Peter and Paul remind their readers and us that the role of government is God-ordained and that respect and honor is due. That it's there to punish evil and to preserve order and it has its place in God's ordering of His universe. Therefore, we have to have the right attitude toward it. Now look, this is not an excuse to throw up our hands and do nothing, as we're going to see in a moment. Nor is it okay to decide that we're going to take matters into our own hands and force a political solution to all of our nation's ills by creating political parties or pushing the ones we like to the exclusion of all others. Remember Jesus' disciples. He had a tax collector who would have been understood to be a Roman collaborator, and Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a political party driven to the violent overthrow of Rome. And because of who Jesus was, both changed their way of thinking. When we push our thoughts and our parties and our, our ways of looking at things, we become like the people of, Jer of Jeremiah too. We dig our own cisterns. And we can just as easily create an idol out of the power of government as going the other way and eschewing it completely. And here's what Stetzer says about this danger. Few idols have wreaked as much havoc in the church and hurt our witness more than the way evangelicals have engaged in politics. The near-blind devotion of many evangelicals towards political parties has produced a litany of vicious anti-gospel rhetoric from the very people proclaim, or claiming to engage the world for the gospel. Idolatry of politics and political solutions is evident in the way many people respond to legitimate criticism of their candidates or their party. If you see your political party as never being wrong, there is a problem. Some Christians seem more interested in political loyalty than love of neighbor. 
When we recognize our reliance on politics to save us, we start to see the mechanism of idolatry inside of us. It is really the lust of the eyes that looks out in the world and tries to find someone else to save us. To be honest, it's much easier to drift toward hoping a politician or political party will be our functional savior because that is something we have an illusion of control over. We feel our voice can sway a politician as if he or she isn't really a human being, but rather an object we desire to control and use to meet our own needs. But this mentality causes us great spiritual harm because when we look to someone else to deliver us, we are rejecting Jesus as our true savior. We also place roadblocks in front of friends and neighbors with opposing political viewpoints to whom we may give the impression that they must align themselves to our political views to be Christians. Finally, we set ourselves up for ultimate failure and disappointment because human politicians disappoint us in a way Jesus never will. When we give up the life-giving fountain of the gospel for the broken cistern of politics, we get the short end of the deal. We need to have the right attitude toward government authority and politics. And the second question in this Peter and Paul thing is, how are you living? The, the issue of respect for human authorities goes beyond our private or not so private attitudes towards those in positions above us. Peter and Paul make it clear that Christians are to do good. And this is in greater society in this context, not just in the church. You don't want to live in fear of the government? Do what's right. Look, the role of the government is to bear the sword, Paul tells us. That's not really an argument for capital punishment in this case. It's a reflection of the role that God gives government. Punish evildoers across the spectrum, not just in capital cases. Both Peter and Paul say that when we do good, we will be commended by those in authority. They don't mean simply live piously outside of the, the purview of the viewpoint of the authorities. The implication is public good, public service, behaving well for the sake of others, and probably others who are not believers. Remember, there weren't many believers at the time. In Romans 13, just after the section we read, Paul says to love your neighbor. And Peter, in the verses leading up to this section, says abstain from sin. And then afterwards, in verse 12, says live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good do deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They may not like what we stand for, but they have to be able to see that we are doing good things. So does our outrage outweigh our good deeds? Or do we live in such a way that the pagans who hate what we stand for will have to say, but they're doing good? Two quick examples. It is often said that Christians are pro-life only before a child is born, that they're pro-birth. And we don't do anything to help women who are in crisis pregnancy situations. And just a few days ago on Twitter, I saw a thread that started with this tweet. Dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support lower income single mothers? 
I'll wait. It didn't go the way she thought. I was amazed and completely heartened by the responses. People talking about how they specifically were involved in helping others. And it looked like Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be about. Second example, and I've shared this before. Christianity started to take off in the Roman Empire, in second century, third century. The growth curve went from like this to up, or from your perspective, up and to the right. When something amazing happened, it wasn't Constantine, which is what everyone would have you believe that Constantine started. It was earlier. Constantine rode a wave that was already coming. You see, there were a series of plagues of the, the plague that hit the Roman Empire. And the Roman citizens left their own to die. They would literally leave the cities and leave their dying relatives in, in the cities. And the Christians stayed. And the Christians took care of the sick and the dying, risking their own lives for the sake of others, for pagans. And Rome, the mightiest empire on earth, was shaken to its core. That was what started the change in the growth curve, when Christians acted like it. Which brings us to the third point. Pray for those in authority and the place where you live. 1 Timothy 2 and Jeremiah uh, 29. Trust, obey, and pray. It's one thing for us to complain about government. It's a great step forward to do something. But that <clears throat> leads me to ask the next question. Are you actively praying for authorities or just complaining about them? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 3. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving may be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. It's easy to complain about the people we don't like in politics. Frankly, it's easy to complain about the people that we say are on our side. But Paul commands Timothy to pray for those in authority. If we are not praying for those in authority, we are not doing politics right. And that includes praying for the people you don't like. We are, in effect... Dismissing God's ability to guide the very people who both Peter and Paul have already shown us he put into power in the first place. Do we really believe that prayer matters? I mean, really. Tim Keller, in his book Prayer, says, To fail to pray, then, is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. He then goes on to show how Job, the whole book, is largely a record of Job's prayers to God. And how the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, he says, are permeated 
by prayer. He, uh, he specifically picks out Daniel as a person whose life is completely saturated by prayer. It almost gets him eaten by lions. And then later, he prays for repentance and the return of his people, and he is heard. Story after story. And Keller reminds us that Jesus' ministry was saturated in prayer, that he taught his disciples to pray, that after the Lord's death, what did the disciples do? They constantly gathered in prayer. And he concludes this section of his book by saying, Prayer is so great that what, wherever you look in the Bible, it is there. Why? Everywhere God is, prayer is. Since God is everywhere and infinitely great, prayer must be all pervasive in our lives. When we don't pray, when we don't pray for those in authority, we are back to point one. Who do you trust? It's one thing for a secular person not to trust God and to put the state at the center. It's an entirely different one for a Christian to act as if God is not here and not involved. And the prophet Jeremiah ministered during the, the period of the Babylonian exile. He remains in Jerusalem while others are carried off. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 and following, he writes to the people in Babylon, and this is what he said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In verse 7, we hear that command to pray for the city where they are exiled. Babylon. Symbol of everything that is wrong with the world. The evil empire, if you will. That was Babylon. Pray for its peace and its prosperity. But this passage says a lot more that leads me to another question. Are we seeking the good of the places we live? Throughout the passages in point two, and now in this point, there's a pattern. God's people are to seek out the prosperity, the welfare, the good of the places they live. The collective good. We don't get to take an attitude that says, I don't care about society or those people, whoever those people are. Remember, Babylon, Rome. Throughout scripture, these two cities, more than any others, represent the opposite of God. In Revelation, Babylon, who many would say is identified specifically with Rome, the picture Babylon's a prostitute, thoroughly corrupt. And yet, what does Jeremiah tell the people that God has said? Build houses and settle down. Make gardens, live. Marry and have children and marry them off so that they can have children. Increase in number. Seek the prosperity of the city. Live. Be a part of the life of the place that you live. 
And when you do it, it's good for you. Side note here. This doesn't mean we don't stand up for what's right. Jesus and Paul, in the passage we read earlier, said, pay taxes. Even though they knew that those taxes were going to go to things that were immoral. In Matthew 22, Jesus says to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And God gets the final word, not Caesar. Right? In Acts 4, and again in Acts 5, Peter and the other disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, who had real civil, civil power. Remember, they give Jesus over to the Romans. They turn Paul over, right? There's real political and civil power there. And what does Peter boldly say? We must obey God rather than man. We obey the civil authorities insofar as we can. There comes a point where we have to say, wait. If Christians hadn't done that, the abolition movement in this country would not have happened. If Christians had not stood up, the civil rights movement would not have happened. We have a responsibility, but we also need to know there will be consequences. Because that's what governments do. And what we're told is, stand up anyway. My friend Jeff Pishney runs an organization called Love Our Cities. It's based out of Modesto, California. Its whole goal is to help Christians be known by what we are for, not what we're against. To actively go out and do good works in the cities we live in. Even with those we don't agree with. In order to show the world that we belong to Christ. That we obey human authority because we follow God. I just got an email from him the other day. As of this year, over 45,000 volunteers and over $20 million in community service have happened because a former pastor at Big Valley Grace Community Church in Modesto, California decided, I want to help the place where I live. And it sprung from there. He's making a difference to advance the gospel by praying for and doing good for the city that he lives in and spreading it around the country. And what would happen if more of us decided that our cities in the here and now were worth helping? That we should be involved. Would those who need Christ be more likely to hear our Facebook rants about politics or what we do to actively help our neighbors? Finally, we need to build the kingdom of the true king by being his ambassador. When I think about the state of politics in our country, in our world, honestly, it's easy to get depressed or cynical. It's easy to throw up our hands, or worse, throw it all away. But when I do that, I'm forced to ask myself, whose kingdom am I seeking? Jeremiah wrote to exiles. Peter calls the believers across what is today Turkey, in just a few verses before what we read, foreigners and exiles. Paul claimed his Roman citizenship, right? But his writing shows that he was clearly at odds with the Roman Empire. He proclaimed the gospel, Jesus is Lord. And the Romans had their own version, Caesar is Lord. 
Paul is clearly not on the same page. And so the question is, whose kingdom am I seeking? Look, I'm a patriotic sort of guy by nature. That's who I am. I love my country. I want it to prosper. But my country is not the same as the kingdom of God. And I want to see good things happen for it and for the people I love and even for people I don't know. But as important as my country is to me, Christ's kingdom is more important. So much more. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and after that point, he begins to preach. And he says in 4.17, the first words of the message we hear, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And after that, he calls his disciples. And then, in chapters 5 to 7, we get the Sermon on the Mount. The teaching about what that kingdom of heaven looks like. And here's what we find. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the, all of those things, all of those people that are not the things that we normally think of. And salt and light and fulfilling the law. He teaches on murder and adultery and divorce, oaths, retribution, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting, where our treasure is, not worrying, judging, ask, seek, knock, the narrow gate. He teaches on true and false prophets and true and false disciples and wise and foolish builders. And in all of it, one thing is crystal clear. This is not the kind of kingdom that we are prone to seek on our own. It's his kingdom, and he is king, he is Lord. And are we seeking that kingdom, or are we seeking our own? In the state of politics today, makes it pretty clear that most of us, no matter our political affiliation, our party, whether we're left or right or younger and old, most of the time we're seeking our own kingdom, our own rights, our own desires. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And when we do, he takes care of the other things, the wants and the needs and the worry. That doesn't mean we get everything we want. This is, after all, the same sermon in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 that says, we are going to be persecuted. That's not the question. The question is whether or not we will look like our king when this happens. Will we show ourselves to be worthy citizens of the kingdom? Ones whose character and political aspirations and actions look like the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy to claim Christ. It's difficult to live that way. And I want to be a citizen of that kingdom first. And more than simply a citizen, an ambassador. Back to Stetzer for one last time. This is what he says about Christians in the here and now. No longer representative of the dominant culture, Christians need to rethink the way we understand cultural engagement, mission, and evangelism in a newly post-Christian society. While Scripture gives us many ways of understanding this mission, I think the most helpful for our purposes is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In describing himself and those with him, Paul uses a term that describes us well. He looks at 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not continuing their trespass, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting uh, to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is crucial to recognize that everything we do, every act of cultural engagement, every opportunity for evangelism starts from the reality that Christ has reconciled us. Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He allows us to not simply receive this grace, but to also participate with him in extending it to those who are still unreconciled, those who are lost, without purpose and lonely. This is, according to Paul, why we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors in the ancient world were more than just messengers or heralds. They were representatives with a mission, endowed with the responsibility to engage a different government or culture on behalf of their sovereign. This means they didn't stay at home. To accomplish their king's task, they left and lived in foreign countries, studying the culture, learning the language, eating the food, and seeking to build bridges to communicate their king's message with clarity and zeal. He goes on to say, we are sent with an allegiance to the king, we are sent with a message of reconciliation, and we are sent to a foreign land with a mission to complete. So my final question, how will you fulfill your role as ambassadors today? Trust, obey, pray, build. We are ambassadors for the true king, for his kingdom. And the question for us is, what kind of ambassador will we be? Are we faithful or have we been co-opted? Are we trusting the king or ourselves? Do we believe that God works or do we feel like we have to do it ourselves and dig our own cistern? We got to be a part of reconciling others to God. And that's far more important than political parties or candidates, platforms or personalities and programs. And when we trust the gospel, when we trust God, we are to mimic the God who works in this world. I warned you up front, I'm not going to give you easy answers on policies or parties. And the truth is that real Christians, honest to goodness, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, can and do disagree politically often. And we can have differences over policies and over candidates. But we better all agree on the character of being Christian. We had better look like ambassadors sent by a king on a mission of reconciliation. Ambassadors whose lives look like the passages that we've reviewed today, who put their trust in God, who obey and pray for those in authority. We had better do these things because we want to see God's kingdom here and now as well as in the world to come. That's getting politics right. And if your political party, your political engagement doesn't allow you to be an ambassador for Christ, for our true king, then you need to do some rethinking on the way that you are engaging in politics. So as we close, if you would stand as we prepare for the closing song, I'd like to read a couple of verses from the Sermon on the Mount as we finish. In Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, 
Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 